Farmland is one of the most attractive asset classes out there in today's environment. Supply of productive acreage is actually shrinking worldwide, pulling land prices higher over time. And demand for agricultural commodities is robust and growing, heavily insulating farm income from rising inflation. So, what are the key factors and trends you need to know when considering investing in farmland? And can you do so without having to buy an actual farm and becoming a farmer yourself? Well, we invited farmland expert Edward Hargroves to answer these very questions at the Wealthion conference held a few months ago. And don't worry if you missed the conference, as we're making our interview with Ed available to you right here, right now. But in spite of size and in spite of age, uh, it's still relatively unknown. Um, and I think that's really a function of the ownership matrix uh, that 98, 99% uh, of farmland in the US is owned by individual farmers, farming families, and not by institutions, unlike you know, stocks and bonds, et cetera. Well, I'm so happy to be interviewing this next guest uh, to talk about an asset class that is, I think, of great interest to most people viewing this conference, um, but perhaps an asset class that they may know, uh, might be one of the ones they know the least about. I'm talking about farmland, and today we are talking with Edward Hargroves, who is a co-founder and partner of Goldcrest Farm Trust Advisors which built and manages the farmland portfolios of Goldcrest Farm Trust REIT, which is a private farmland REIT with over 600 million in long-term long capital. He is responsible for farmland property deal evaluation and execution, portfolio construction, capital markets, finance, fund management, administration, research and strategies, and investor relationships, pr pretty much everything related to running it. Um, prior to Goldcrest, Edward worked for the team that co-founded Agcoa, uh, or Agcoa, Edward, you can correct me on the, the correct pronunciation of that, but why that's important is that is the largest farmland private REIT in the United States. I've asked Edward to join us today to explain the fundamentals of investing in productive farmland, as that's an extremely appealing asset class today to many hard asset investors. Edward, thank you so much for agreeing to speak at this conference. Oh, Adam, thank you for having me. Uh, yeah, and that laundry list of, <laughs> that's what happens when you're part of a small team, you wear lots of hats. Wow. All right. Well, look, let's let's get into the meat of the discussion. Um, but just to kick us, us off, um, so clearly you're a very experienced investor in real estate. Um, let's just begin with an understanding of the advantages of farmland as an asset class. Um, why, why should people invest in it? Well, look, if you're going to start from the beginning, it's the oldest asset class uh, in existence. Uh, and that makes sense because, you know, it's obviously the primary source of food production uh, for, for most people over the course of history. It's also a very large asset class uh, within the U.S. It's on the order of two and a half trillion dollars in size, depending on what types of crops you're including. But in spite of size and in spite of age, uh, it's still relatively unknown. Um, and I think that's really a function of the ownership matrix uh, that 98, 99% uh, of farmland in the US is owned by individual farmers, farming families, and not by institutions, unlike you know, stocks and bonds, et cetera. Now, institutions you know, with this one to 2% ownership, you are starting to see uh, you know, influx of capital coming into the market, case in point, you know, firms uh, you know, like 
the one that I'm a part of because of attractive attributes. But typically when you see you know, fresh capital moving into a market, particularly coming from a low institutional base that often bodes very well for the asset class uh, going forward. Now, why would institutions, you know, want to invest in this asset class? Well, principally, uh, it's demonstrated very strong risk-adjusted returns uh, over most any period in history. Uh, so strong returns, low volatility relative to stocks and bonds, a high sharp ratio, uh, it's outperformed meaningfully during recessions. You know, I believe since World War II, it's really only had maybe six or seven down years. Uh, you know, and that also makes sense given that it's a tangible real asset, cash flowing real asset uh, that obviously has linkages to, to food, food production. You still need to eat uh, during recessionary years. It also has uh, acts as a great portfolio diversifier. It's um, you know, it has low or negative correlation with all these other asset classes, uh, stocks and bonds, so it fits very well into a portfolio, but where it does have correlation uh, and strong correlation is with inflation, which is obviously a very, you know, a theme that is very front and center uh, these days. So there's also a very compelling uh, long-term macro backdrop as well. Over the next 30 years, we're going to add two and a half billion people uh, to the world. That's a 30% uh, increase over today. And this growth is principally coming from the emerging markets, uh, Southeast Asia, Africa, uh, key importing nations uh, uh, for, for food. They are unable to satiate that demand themselves. And so, you know, what's important here is there are only certain places in the planet that have optimal conditions, be it soils, be it uh, climate, weather, infrastructure that can provide that food. Uh, the chief, most important one, the blue chip of the world, principally being the U.S., it is, uh, you know, which is the largest producer exporter of the greatest amount of crops in the world. So, you know, I think that's something that's very supportive going forward. As you see this continuous uptick every year in demand, where are you going to find that production? Um, you know, certainly, you know, you can find it through if you add acres, but that's very hard in a world where we're starting to get more concerned with ESG deforestation, et cetera. And so it means that you're more reliant on increasing the productivity of that land. But every year, you still have to know that you're going to add 70 million more people that need to be fed. All right, great. So um, all excellent reasons. And you kind of provided already a nice segue into my next question, which is sort of, what are the major trends that you see driving the future of agriculture um, you know, from an investment uh, with an investment out, uh, viewpoint. Um, so you already talked about population growth. Yep. Um, you also briefly touched right there on the end of, um, you know, land, they're not making any more of it. And, yep. uh, you know, we're losing land to development and droughts and stuff like that. So uh, it's not like there's going to be uh, the risk of a massive new supply of farmland coming online, you know, anytime soon. Um, uh, anything else? Uh, I, you know, I, I guess there's, there's weather Trends. I don't know if that plays a huge issue, but I, I know right now in the states, at least, right, we're having a pretty sizable drought in the American West. Um, I live in California, which is having one of its worst droughts ever, and we've got the the whole Central Valley, which is where a ton of of different products, uh, the majority of a ton of different uh, food groups in the, the U.S. Are, are grown. So, does weather play a role? Um, do geopolitics play a role? Uh, you mentioned inflation; that may play a role in terms of demand for the pricing. 
There's uh, the trend towards more organic eating. I don't know if that has a real material uh, impact or whatnot. Um, but anyways, I just rattled off a bunch of ideas. What, are the, what, what ones have, you know, kind of occupy your focus as somebody who invests on a daily basis in the space? Yeah, no, like all, all those trends are, are very real. Um, you know, some of the trends that I'm seeing, obviously I touched on uh, that influx of institutional capital uh, that's coming into the market and, and why it's coming in. But just to put, you know, some better you know, framing around that, when I first entered this space, you know, 15 years ago in 2006, there were probably on the order of 15 to 20 uh, investment, uh, you know, farmland investment managers in the world. Uh, and today, they're probably three times that in the US alone. Uh, so obviously, you know, over the last 15 years, meaningful growth, but we're going to continue to see, uh, you know, new investment managers coming into the space. If only, only this week, I saw a new uh, a Canadian, very large Canadian pension fund, uh, Case Depot, announcing that they want to put, uh, you know, one to $2 billion of, of capital out in US and Australian farmland. Uh, over the next five years. And you have lots of data points uh, like that. You also mentioned, you know, ESG, and I think that's very front and center across, uh, you know, across most every asset class. But if you're going to break it down by uh, these particular initials, you know, on the, you know, on, on the, on the S part, uh, you know, the, so, the, the, the social part, I think we're starting to think, um, you know, pay greater attention uh, to understanding and demonstrating, you know, where your food is being produced. What were the inputs that are going into it? What chemicals are going into it? What's your carbon footprint uh, going forward? What's your carbon footprint of your supply chain? So scopes one, two, and three. Um, what's the nutritional content? You know, we have a great battle with obesity in the U.S. Um, you know, majority of COVID-related deaths, you know, were people who are overweight. So I think nutrition. And understanding the source of your food uh, is a particular theme that we're starting to see more of. And maybe that takes you going down, you know, the sort of regenerative agriculture side, uh, you know, less of these uh, sort of toxic chemicals, et cetera. You know, equally climate, uh, which you touched on and, um, you know, very important uh, from that standpoint as well. So understanding that, you know, if we are all going to participate in slowing uh, global warming, uh, it has to come from, uh, you know, everyone has to play their part. Agriculture has really had a bad rap and, and you know, perhaps rightfully so as being a big emitter, uh, you know, and a producer, you know, that's resulted in some of this climate change. So as you move to, I think you're going to start to see, you know, greater attention being paid to how can you do more sustainable farming, uh, not only uh, lessening your emissions, but hopefully also starting to sequester some of that carbon, you know, going down that regenerative farming route. So I think, you know, an, another point is really on the topic of, of food security. Um, I really feel like COVID, it kind of opened Pandora's box in terms of the way that uh, individuals, uh, companies, governments uh, view food. Um, and I think there's been a behavioral change there. So heading into COVID, you know, the US and the world had really gone through a period of, of bounty, plenty of surplus uh, inventories around the world. Uh, but when COVID happened, you started to see border closures, you saw bottlenecks, uh, you know, uh, within countries. Uh, and as a result, 
in, in many from for, for many different crops you started to see increase in, uh, increases in prices like rice prices went through the roof and as prices started to, to increase um, you saw you saw countries emerging markets which their currencies had been crushed they were looking to export more products because they're being paid in, in dollars which resulted in their own government saying okay we want to keep this food in our own country so they imposed export tariffs and restrictions. There were 17 plus countries around the world that did this, which further exacerbated price increases, et cetera. And so it's, you know, on the one hand, you know, if you're an exporting country and you're, you know, you're seeing prices rise, but you're keeping food, uh, you know, within your own, uh, you know, your own country, that's okay. But if you're a massive food importer, that's certainly a, a big concern. You know, you have a lot of the Middle East countries which have young populations, uh, which are all you know, big food importers. They have a history of, uh, you know, civil unrest when, when wheat prices and bread prices start to go up and you can't have food, uh, when you, you don't have sustainable food within your own country. And that becomes a very big cause for concern for governments. You know, it's the chief recipe to seeing, uh, seeing you, your government topple from that side. So I think that, you know, with COVID in the rearview mirror now, or hopefully more in the rearview mirror, and frankly, even the Arab Spring, you know, only 10 years ago, it's amazing how we forget, you know, what happened, uh, you know, back then. But you're going to have companies and you're going to have governments really start to focus more on, you know, as opposed to just in-time inventory management, just in-case inventory management. Make sure that you have sort of more surplus inventories that or, than you would ordinarily hold. I think that's, you know, that's going to be a big theme going forward. Doesn't get a lot of press. All right. Um, really fascinating. And um, to restate it and correct me if I'm restating this incorrectly, um, you know, it sounds like food going forward may, may need to be a little bit more expensive, um, sort of in the way that, that, you know, the organic movement has said, hey, look, um, Organic food is always going to be more expensive than conventional food, um, but it's for a good reason, right? It's healthier, it treats the land better, et cetera. And it's a price that we should pay for the health of our bodies and our soils. Um, you're basically saying, look, um, you're probably going to see, you know, the food supply chains in a, in a lot of countries change uh, so that they do probably have a, a slightly higher cost basis, but it's to add resiliency to the system. So on average, our food might get a little bit more expensive, but hopefully we're going to have a lot more dependability on those supply chains for those in investments that we're making. Is that accurate? Yeah, you nailed it. And I think right, that you know, you're seeing plenty of you know, CEOs or various CPGs talking about that as well, that we're never going to be caught short again. Uh, we need to change you know, how we manage our supply chains. All I'm, right. just take, I'm just taking it to a sort of national uh, level as well. Okay, um, so I want to now move to the question of, you know, what is it that you look at in land when you're considering buying farmland? You know, what, what makes an attractive property? Um, but I want to continue pulling at this thread that we were just talking about, it's sort of about resilience. Um, and I imagine one of the most important factors when it comes to buying good farmland is getting good access to water. Um, so if you can, you know, sort of talk about the key role that water plays as well in, in your land selection process. Sure. Well, look, you know, getting, a, a waxing philosophically for a, for a minute, you know, uh, 71% of the earth, uh, is covered in water, but, 
of that water, 97% of it uh, is, is in oceans and only 3% of that is fresh water. And of that fresh water, uh, the vast majority of that is inaccessible. It's stuck in polar ice caps in the ground and the atmosphere, et cetera. And so we have you know, very little available usable fresh water you know, from a grand scheme of things. Uh, I once heard a stat that if you had, uh, if you viewed, you know, global water supply, if you said that was a, that was worth a uh, hundred liters, uh, that usable water supply for fresh water, for, for for drinking, for growing of crops, would amount to half a teaspoon. So, hundred gallons, we have half a teaspoon that we're dealing with. And um, you know, Benjamin Franklin, you know, uh, you know once said, you know, when the world run, runs dry, uh, we'll really know the worth of water. And obviously it is, you know, um, you know, it's the lifeblood of agriculture. Without water, there is no crop. And you, you see this, you know, if, if, if I'm taking, if I'm, ta if I'm looking at this from, from a macro perspective, um, you know, let's take China as an example. China has 20% of the world's population. It's got 9% of the world's arable land, but only 6% of the world's water supply. But if you drill down further into China, to Northern China, that's, they have two thirds, uh, two thirds of Chinese farmland is in the North and half their population, uh, but yet they have very deficient levels of water. There's uh, a term called, uh, the, the international definition for water stress is having access to a thousand cubic meters of water per person per year. Uh, and in China, they have a fifth of that access. So what does that mean? It means that they've got a lot of people, uh, and they, they, but they don't have enough water to grow their own crops. So they have to look elsewhere around the world, places that do have water to send them those crops. The U.S., uh, you know, is one of those uh, is one of those key areas. So when I'm thinking about, you know, uh, you, uh, you massive exports that we're sending over to China, really think of that. You know, if you're sending a soybean or corn over to China, that's really a proxy for water from the beginning. I, do you want me to go into anything else on water, like in terms of? Sure. Well, how about um, let, let's talk about sort of water rights. Um, personally, you know, I, I've interviewed uh, uh, the managing director of, of Farmland LP, which is a much, much smaller fund than yours, uh, but it's very sort of, um, you know, sustainable agriculture focused um, and really getting to know how that that fund is run. I almost think of it as water rights LP versus Farmland LP, because yep. that seems to be the primary selection point for why they're, they're picking their acreage. So, you know, so when I, when I drill down into water, there are two different routes that you can take to invest in farmland. One is you can say that you're going to be reliant on mother nature and you believe that you know in any given year you're going to get enough water uh, on your dry land farm in Iowa where it's not irrigated and maybe it's a little bit of hope for the best but you like the track record and history that you have grown great crops in that area uh, just through natural rainfall or there's a focus on actually having irrigation. And within the US, there are different ways uh, that you can access this. You know, you mentioned in the Pacific Northwest, it's, uh, you know, Idaho, for instance, is very much of a desert and you're drilling wells and you're getting sort of groundwater and you wanna make sure that you have sanctity of water rights, that you have senior rights relative to uh, to other farms. Uh, and that's, that's how you sort of get comfortable with uh, you know, uh, the, the strength of your water for that farm. 
But you go elsewhere in the country and it's a different, it's a different game. You go to the, the Delta and you have a lot of rivers. Uh, you know, you can really you can sort of, you know, pardon the pun, but you can you know, put your, your finger in the ground and you often get access to water. Uh, it's free. And now it's just a question of you know, managing that infrastructure, the costs to get the water from the river, you know, surface water. Um, you know, or if you have wells, they're, they're probably pretty cheap to drill and maintaining that irrigation infrastructure, the capex behind that. So, you know, water, you know, you can play it two ways. Like, you know, agriculture really is a water play, um, but do you want to have that ability to go to bed and sleep at night knowing that you're gonna get water on, you know, you're gonna be able to water your crop, but perhaps you paid a little bit more for it, you're paying for that water, you're paying for the upkeep of your infrastructure, or you're waiting for mother nature and, you know, you, you see where that takes you. Okay. All right. Well, look, let's get into the nuts and bolts here. So um, now your fund that you run is for big institutional players. It's not open to retail investors like the folks that are watching this video. Um, but do you have thoughts as just sort of an expert in the space of options for smaller investors to get into this asset class, um, whether it be through publicly traded ETFs, private funds, private REITs, crowdfunding sites like Acre Trader or Farm Together. Um, do, do you have any general uh, advice for people that are interested in investing in farmland, but, but they're not a billion dollar institution? Sure, look, I think you know, one of the reasons that um, you know, I, I've, I've made this a career on the institutional side uh, is my belief that you know, this is, farmland is a very capital intensive um, uh, way to invest. And so by that nature, there is that inherent moat. Uh, and that's, that, that was something that you know, is attractive in my position, but there has been that advent of these uh, you know, fractional ownership firms. You, know, you mentioned Acre Trader, Farm Together. I can't really speak to uh, the companies in question, their management teams, their fee structures their pedigree, how they underwrite farms, et cetera. But from an actual you know, access point to the retail investor, you know, I, I love the idea of fractional ownership. And, and I think that's, you know, it provides, you know, nice access to, to being able to invest in this asset class. You know, that said, I would say that if you are going down this route, um, you know, perhaps if let's say if you had $50,000 to invest, uh, you know, spread it out over five properties, for instance. So uh, if you're buying into one property, you're not, you're, you're not going to be diversified. So you're at the mercy of that operator or that climate, uh, those soils. And, and whereas, you know, if you, if you can put capital into different properties, you know, that's, that, that feels a little bit better. You know, that plays into the root of some of the, you know, the public, publicly traded farmland companies, uh, which obviously have that natural diversifier but they being publicly tra traded, uh, they start to have more correlation with what's going on with the actual you know, ag markets. Um, so they sort of trade more in line with, with crop prices. And when you invest in farmland, you wanna be free from the daily mark of if corn prices went up or down because it rained, et cetera. You wanna have you know, something that's a little bit more stable, that latency that you believe that the trends are going higher rather than, hey, your farm is worth a million dollars today, it's now worth 500 grand. Like that, those aren't ways that, uh, you know, <laughs> that you can sleep at night. Um, you know, if you want to outside of investing in, uh, in these areas, like, you know, 
you can get exposure through you know buying commodity ETFs like DBA, you know which uh, are you know as a construct of different crops uh, as part you know part of that 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 makeup. And as I mentioned, obviously you know corn prices, water, uh, soy prices, you know they are uh, they're a proxy for water, and you know one would believe that if corn prices are going up. Uh, the farmers making more money and therefore the land that produces that crop also goes up so there is obviously that linkage and it's a proxy for investing in farmland uh, but you know it's obviously it's again it's reliant and, and it's levered to you know what's going on the vagaries of the daily market uh, so it's not really a perfect play got it got it okay so um just to sort of recap there are um uh huge institutional funds like yours there's private funds like the Farmland LP model I mentioned briefly earlier. Um, those usually have pretty high minimums. Um, then there's publicly traded ETFs, which you talked about super briefly, but um, I know Gladstone is a big one. If yep. there's any others of note, feel free to chime in. And then beneath there, you've got these sort of small fractional ownerships um, models like the new um, Acre Trader and Farm Together. And, and you're right, you said you couldn't really speak too much to how they're run. One of the important things about those is they really are new. Um, so it's kind of an interesting and to some people exciting model, but we don't really have any exits yet coming from those. Um, so you know nobody can really talk definitively as to how they perform because most of the projects that they're raising capital for there are you know, three to 10 year projects. And I think those companies have only been, you know, raising capital for the past you know, two years or so. Um, so you have that, and those are those are buying into the farmland side of things. Of course, you could always go buy your own farm, but I think most people are interested in this discussion because they don't want to have to become a farmer themselves. Um, but you've said, you know, separate from the farms, there's also the the commodities, the products that come off those farms, and you can invest in those. And I think you mentioned DBA, and there's a number of ETFs out there for specific types of commodities. Um, all right, well. Edward, thank you so much for sharing your incredibly deep expertise in this space with us. Um, as we begin to wrap up here, um, is there anything else that you think uh, you know the the curious-minded retail investors should know about farmland before potentially you know cutting a check to one of these solutions that we talked about? So I think well, right now you know agriculture uh, markets. Uh, are in a really interesting place. And if I was just to, you know, maybe take a step back for a while, um, you know, pre really mid 2020, we, for the last you know, six or seven years, uh, agriculture across the world and commodity prices have been depressed. Pretty much every headline, um, you know, every, uh, every headline was negative. Lots of headwinds across the world. You had periods of optimal weather, during growing seasons across the whole, you know, for the most part across the whole world, you had periods of surplus, you know, bountiful stocks that seemed to grow every year. You had manufactured demand side issues, be it trade wars, uh, you know, being, uh, you know, with our key buying partners, Mexico, Canada, China. You had African swine fever uh, in China, which resulted in the decimation of their hog herd and resulted in less imports. You had, you know, on the, on the something that impacted the, the the biofuel side, ethanol and biodiesel. You had the Russian Saudi oil price war. So when oil prices went negative, that pulled down uh, the energy complex within agriculture commodities. So lots of negative things uh, going, uh, you know, in, in, in recent years. And yet farmland prices remain pretty resilient, even though the farmer 
uh, you know, what was sort of more cash strapped than he had been. But I think midway through 2020, uh, the narrative started to change. We were heading into last year with the expectation that we were going to have, you know, bin busting, uh, you know, crops, uh, uh, you know, within the US. Weather started to change a little bit and uh, what was you know, set up to be a record crop turned out, in, turned out to be a very sort of average one. That then started to lead into other weather events that we saw around the rest of the world. Uh, La Nina, case in point, you saw droughts in the FSU in Russia and Ukraine, uh, which impacted their wheat and corn crops. You saw droughts uh, in South America, Brazil, Argentina, which delayed their planting season, which left the US export window open longer. And so you started to see you know, these murmurings of supply side issues for the first time in a while. And I feel like in a world where you know, we have climate change, uh, it's, you know, that was, that's the more likely route that we will go, that you're, there's a greater expectation for more extreme and more prevalent weather events going forward than there has been. But we just didn't really see that uh, in, in recent years. It was sort of like we kept getting lucky and having bumper crops across the world. And if there was a weather event, uh, it was happening, happening when a crop wasn't growing. But now you've also started to see uh, the re-emergence of massive demand. Uh, China, for really since 2016, had been in a period of destocking, selling out of reserves to satiate some of the you know, domestic demand internally in lieu of importing extra crop. Between 2016 and 2020, they drew down their corn inventories from 230 million tons to 188 million tons, so 42 million odd tons, which is basically close to the equivalent of the amount of corn that the US exports uh, in any given year. So a vast amount. They then, you know, I think with COVID in the backdrop and that fear of, you know, food security and making sure that you really want to, uh, you know, control uh, your food supplies domestically. They came out uh, in recent months with their five-year plan from 20, 2021 to 2025 uh, at their plenum, talking about the need to focus on uh, strategic assets, agricultural commodities, crude oil, strategic metals, etc. And you've started to see this sort of replenishment, uh, you know, in, in their inventories. Their, their hog herd, which, as I mentioned earlier, had been decimated from African swine fever, started to rebuild and there has been torrid buying uh, since really uh, you, know, uh, you know midway through last year we've seen crop prices you know getting a lot of headlines right now we're sort of close to 10-year highs in many crop prices but yet we haven't reached points where we're starting to ration demand only yesterday i think data came out saying china bought the second most grain uh, that it, it ever has in history even at these prices you have exporters um, or, or these, these, these Chinese importers and other countries around the world, you know, are fighting for demand with our own internal consumers, livestock, ethanol, you know, biofuel industry. Our biofuel industry, on the, in the case of biodiesel, continues to grow. So there's that fight for demand. And what that's left, what that's resulted in has been we have, we're operating at pretty much uh, close to pipeline stocks across many, most of the major producer exporters of the world, across most major crops. So we, are, we don't have a great setup right now. We're heading into this growing season with demand that is still very high. We have low pipeline stocks. 
And as you mentioned, you know, you're seeing droughts in California, et cetera, but within the, the, the key grain uh, producers of the US, we have droughts in, no in the Northwest West Midwest, we have droughts in the Northern Plains, the, the Dakotas right now, and we haven't even hit the meat of the growing season when weather events and weather volatility uh, really starts to, uh, to, to, to kick in. Uh, and so right now, I think the risk reward, the setup is that you know, this is a bull market that uh, in agricultural commodities and ultimately you know, feeding through to how that impacts farmland that could last you know, through at least the end of 2022. The only way that we are going to, to stop this is, is if we have absolutely perfect weather across all the major producers uh, going forward. And that will really just sort of maintain the status quo. It's not going to change anything. Uh, but if you absent that, you know, we could continue to draw down stocks even more, or you need to have prices go to levels that start to ration demand. And we haven't seen that yet happen at $7 corn. So it's, you know, it's interesting how the tables have really turned, you know, in the course of six months from something that was, you know, really every headline being pretty negative to every headline being incredibly positive. And this is before we even start thinking about money coming into this market to satisfy you know, the inflation play, for instance. So, you know, uh, it, you, you can talk about the Fed saying, you know, do we do we believe that inflation is uh, is out you know is out of control or not? But you know, every commodity, agriculture commodities, metals, lumber, you know, lumber prices were up three hundred and seventy percent year over year. They're up either double or triple digits percentage wise year over year. They're, they're up two hundred and thirty percent right now, having fallen from up three hundred and seventy percent. You know, home prices, the median price of a home is up thirty six grand versus last year. Uh, you're seeing food companies, the Hormels, you know, saying that we're going to be raising turkey prices going forward. J.M. Smuck are talking about we're going to be raising you know, the price in peanut butter. And so, you know, regardless of what the Fed says, you know, all this money that's coming into the system, you know, $12.3 trillion of stimulus over the past 13 months. And that's before, you know, the next $6 trillion, you know, that, 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 that might come through the new budget. Um, you know, I, inflation is here. Um, and it's, you know, it's readily apparent, uh, you know, inflation expectations are bid right now. And so I think, you know, the confluence of all these different things is very supportive for ag in general. Great. That's an excellent way to end this discussion. You know, what you're saying there basically is uh, with your season perspective, you see a lot of tailwinds supporting ag prices from here, both the commodities themselves, as well as the soils that grow them. Um, Edward, again, thank you so much for, for coming on our conference here and sharing so much of your expertise. Um, very quickly, for folks that are interested in sort of learning more about agriculture, following developments there, or perhaps even following you, are there any uh, sources uh, that you recommend they check out? So I think the easiest way, honestly, feel free to reach out over LinkedIn. Um, you know, that's, and I'm happy to direct them uh, any way they want. Excellent. All right. Well, thanks so much for coming on, Edward. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Lovely being here. We hope you've enjoyed this detailed discussion with farmland investor Edward Hargroves. If you find yourself now inspired to add farmland to your own portfolio, consider scheduling a free, no-strings-attached consultation with a financial advisor familiar with the options that Edward and I discussed in this interview. To do so, just fill out the very short form at Wealthion.com and we'll help set one up for you.
But before you do, please hit the like button and then click the subscribe button below if you haven't already, as well as that little bell icon right next to it. It only takes a second and it really does help us out as the more subscribers this channel has, the more big name experts we can attract onto this program in the future. Okay, thanks for liking and subscribing, and as always, thanks for watching.